Hello, I'm Kurshid Ghani, and uh, I'd like to welcome you. And thank you for coming and attending our first collaborative wide webinar for 2022. I'm going to kick off today's meeting with a couple of updates around the collaborative, and then I'm going to introduce the topics that we're going to hear today. And as, as you're familiar by now, uh, we welcome all your comments in the chat box, and we will have time in between all the talks to get uh, feedback and get your involvement. But a couple of uh, recent progress items around the music collaborative. The first thing is, and you'll hear more about this today, is that we are going to start a new initiative collecting data on PSMA PET scan and start to understand where this type of imaging can be valuable in the diagnosis of uh, patients with prostate cancer and also those who develop biochemical recurrence. So this is an exciting new initiative for us, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that later. We're also uh, kicking off the Kidney Notes project, and this is our new method of tracking outcomes for patients who undergo uh, radical or partial nephrectomy. And so we're glad to see that this is following in a similar manner how we tracked outcomes for radical prostatectomy. And congratulations to the Kidney team for getting that on board. And then something I just want to uh, uh, take a moment is to thank all the sites, all the clinical champions and providers who've met with us over the last six months. The music team has visited 32 urology practices across the state. Yes, virtually, but we spent one hour with each practice and we've gone through your performance and our performance and, and, and really got to know each other. And we found these visits, these uh, dissemination impl implementation site visits immensely um, uh, helpful. And I just want, we wanna take a moment to thank everyone for, uh, for, for this opportunity. A couple of other updates. Uh, we are uh, have been able to kick off our first randomized clinical trial in, in rocks, in kidney stones, and it's called the BLUES clinical trial. And in this study, there are six sites across uh, the music group. We are assessing outcomes after urethroscopy and stenting, where we're assessing a new uh, type of silicone stent to see if this reduces the patient reported outcomes and also healthcare utilization. And so we're fortunate to have this study sponsored by Coloplast. And we want to take a moment to thank all the sites who are actively working with us to getting this uh, on board. And we hope to report on the results of this uh, a year later. Another bit of exciting news is that uh, Music welcomed its first uh, outside Michigan uh, site, and that is uh, UNC, University of North Carolina. Uh, this is a press release that uh, their department uh, put on the day that we that they formally signed an agreement to join with us. So we want to take a moment to thank all the providers at UNC, especially Dr. Tan and Dr. Nielsen and, and, and all the other partners. And we're excited to have you on board. And hopefully you're at the webinar today. So look forward to all your comments as well later on. A couple of key publications from music, uh, Dr. Arcot and Dr. Ginsberg published uh, in the Prostate Journal on delayed radical prostatectomy. And um, also Dr. Ginsberg and Dr. Lane and, and collaborators uh, published around uh, the kidney uh, initiative and some of the aspects around quality of care related to AUA uh, guideline adherence. Dr. Hawkin and Dr. Dow and the ROCKS team published on opioid-free discharges and how um, their impact on uh, unplanned healthcare encounters. And this body of work on opiate reduction and urethroscopy, we're gonna hear the similar theme and echoes around that with the work on shockwave lithotripsy that the ROCKS team will also present later today. 
Moving on to uh, the upcoming AUA meeting in New Orleans in May, um, Music uh, submitted um, uh, uh, 18 abstracts and of which 16 were accepted. So congratulations to all the authors, co-authors across the state who are representing our work and we're really um, grateful for that. And we're also looking forward to seeing you all in person if you're attending the AUA uh, at our AUA reception uh, on the Saturday, you'll get more details of that uh, in due course. So now I'd like to take uh, a few moments to speak about the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan value-based reimbursement uh, method that music is involved in. And, and I hear this routinely at, at our site visits, like what is value-based reimbursement? And what value-based reimbursement is, it's a method that we've developed in partnership with Blue Cross, where we look at specific quality metrics that we collect, that we are working on, and see if we hit those metrics, then that leads to extra payments to practices uh, across the state, regardless of whether it's a specific procedure or not. It's for any Blue Cross claims. So these are measures based on population level quality improvement metrics that we collect and that we define uh, in participation uh, with you all. And, and over the years, Blue, this has amounted to more than a million dollars in extra payments to all music urologists. And this is for any uh, Blue Cross Blue uh, Shield of Michigan uh, claim. And for the year that's just uh, upcoming, we are on target to get uh, $1.8 million in increased payments as a result of the good work that you're all doing. A little bit of, on how this is paid, there are different components on how the, these are tracked and met. So one of, the, one of the first components, and what I'm showing you is for the 2023 metrics, the two things that we track, and so you want to be mindful of this, is urinalysis and urine culture before urethroscopy and the amount of patients that are discharged on an opioid-free radical prostatectomy pathway. And you can see what the current performance metrics are and what our target performance metrics are. And then we also have a couple of metrics around salvage radiation therapy, um, reducing opioid prescription following discharge from shockwave lithotripsy, and we'll hear more about that today, and then some guidance on chest imaging for renal masses between three to seven centimeters. And again, you can see what our baseline performance and what our target performance. And if we hit these uh, metrics, then we as a group across the state will be able to get extra payments for our uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield related claims. Something new for 2023, which is quite exciting, and it just shows the support Blue Cross has in terms of improving healthcare across the state and the value that they place on this, is we're going to start a, a, a smoking cessation initiative. And if we uh, start to do this as a group, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield will reward the collaborative with an additional 3%. And so you can see some of the estimations here that this means roughly around $3 million in extra payments. So all the quality work that we're doing is resulting in increased payments to the providers to provide better care. And this smoking cessation initiative is done through our pro uh, radical prostatectomy questionnaire where patients will be asked if they want to give up smoking. And then we will, the coordinating center will provide them uh, a pathway and resources to do that. So uh, what's, uh, what do we expect to hear today in today's meeting? We're going to have, uh, uh, we're going to initially start with talks from the prostate group. And as I said, they're going to tell us about the PSMA PET uh, initiative 
And we're going to hear from Dr. Um, Samurjan, Dr. George, as well as uh, in the panel discussion, Dr. Hafron and Dr. Shreve, who's a radiologist. Then we will uh, move to the ROCS team where Drs. Dow and Dr. Katru will speak about um, optimizing pain management after shockwave lithotripsia. And they'll also provide some of the data on a recent survey of music urologists on practice patterns around this. And they'll also prevent, present some state-of-the-art evidence uh, and outcomes in the music registry. And then we'll be joined in the panel. I'll be joining them. And we'll, we'll also have the input of Harry West, who is a shockwave lithotripsy uh, technologist. Uh, we're fortunate to have him involved in the discussion. And then we're going to close with the kidney group and uh, Drs. Patel and Dr. Lane will be speaking about an exciting new initiative for us in the roadmap for surveillance of small renal masses. So they're going to speak about that roadmap. And uh, that's something that we're going to release and provide all the practices in the next few weeks. And then there will be a panel discussion where Drs. Rogers, Dr. Levin, and Dr. Samurjian will, will be joined by two patient advocates, Jürgen Nietzsche and James Humphreys. And we're really looking forward to their involvement. We thank them for that because understanding their perspective and the patient voice is an integral part of what we do. And it's um, truly vital for the work that we're doing. So we thank them for their support uh, in, with this. So I'd like to take a moment just to thank our sponsors, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and the Value Partnerships Program. And thank you all for your ongoing commitment to make Michigan the number one place for urologic care and also outside Michigan. Thank you. I'd like to now uh, introduce Dr. Alice Samurjian and let her begin the prostate section. Thank you, Alice. Take it away. Thank you, Dr. Ghani. As many are aware, PSMA-PET has been recently FDA approved and incorporated into the NCCN guidelines. This is an exciting time to start collecting data so we can understand the utility in a real-world diverse setting. Looking at utilization for imaging and prostate cancer is not a new idea for music. The goal of one of the early music initiatives was to understand rates of utilization and of conventional staging imaging studies and ensure that they were being performed for appropriate patients, those who would benefit the most from them. We've had previous success in achieving this goal by using internal music data. We have an opportunity to start a similar initiative in PSMA as it just entering the scene. We can learn a lot from our collaboration in terms of utility, patient selection, and how PSMA will shape treatment decisions. PSMA PET refers to the use of radiopharmaceuticals that target prostate-specific membrane antigen or PSMA on prostate cells. Currently, the two approved tracers are PYL and gallium-68. There are many more that are being currently evaluated in trials, which may be relevant in the future. There is no evidence that these tracers differ significantly in terms of how they perform. PSMA PET has a higher sensitivity and specificity than conventional imaging studies. In the new NCCN guidelines, PSMA PET can be considered for use instead of conventional imaging in three scenarios, during initial staging, after biochemical recurrence, and to monitor disease progression. For initial stating, the NCSCN recommendation is for unfavorable intermediate risk and higher. It may identify metastases that are not seen on conventional imaging or clarify areas that are suspicious but remain equivocal given its increased sensitivity. That means that men who have metastatic disease may be identified earlier, changing treatment decisions. The pictures demonstrate the difference between a standard bone scan and PSMA PET scan. These are actually scans from the same patient with high-risk disease who was upstaged on PSMA PET. 
These are the most recent updates to the NCCN guidelines. The highlighted sentence here states that conventional imaging does not have to be done as a prerequisite to ordering staging or biochemical recurrence evaluation studies with PSMA PET. We've all been in a position in which patients have had equivocal findings on pre-op staging CT or MRI, particularly in terms of pelvic nodes. Given the superior accuracy and sensitivity of PSMA, these findings may become less common. Perhaps in the future, PSMA will be able to inform the decision to perform lymph node dissection during prostatectomy, as this is a part of the procedure that does carry a certain degree of risk. The study is looking at a subgroup analysis of 277 surgical patients at UCLA and UCSF. The PSMA PET was read independently by four radiologists. These all showed excellent agreement. These were then compared to surgical pathology following prostatectomy. PSMA PET performed rather well uh, with a negative predictive value of 80% and a sensitivity of 40%. Additionally, the specificity was seen to be 95%. Within our own music data, we have seen roughly 10% sensitivity for nodal metastatic disease using CT and bone scan, and MRI was only slightly better at 20%. A similar study has been done by the Osprey group, which I'll be referring to later with similar results. Switching gears to the biochemical recurrence space, another key use of PSMA PET will be in men after development of biochemical recurrence after treatment. The recommendation per the NCCN here is to consider bone and soft tissue imaging. Axiomen is another type of PET scan, which has been indicated in the BCR space. Again, the, uh, the sensitivity of PSMA in the setting has been shown to be high compared to conventional imaging studies, which often underestimates burden of disease or simply do not show it. Accurate staging can lead to differences in disease management after biochemical recurrence as well. This is a comparison between PSMA and Axiomen at detection of disease in men who have experienced early biochemical recurrence. That's a PSA between 0.2 and 2.0. PSMA PET is represented by the red bars and Axiomen by the blue. Overall, the detection rates of PSMA are much higher at 56% compared to 26% with Axiomen. The exception is the prostate bed in which Axiomen slightly outperforms. Pelvic lymph nodes, extrapelvic nodes, bone mets, other organ mets, and any extrapelvic lesion are all more readily seen on PSMA PET. This leads to improvement in accurate staging and more appropriate treatment based on metastases. For example, after biochemical recurrence, men may be referred for radiation under the assumption that disease is limited to the pelvis and the prostate bed. However, PSMA may reveal distant metastatic disease, which would possibly obviate the need for additional local treatment. Osprey was a prospective multi-center trial with two cohorts. Uh, cohort B looked at 117 men who had conventional imaging suggestive of recurrence or metastatic disease that was amenable to biopsy. PSMA detected nearly 60% of metastases that were not seen on conventional imaging. The graph on the bottom right corner shows sensitivity and positive predictive value for biopsy confirmed metastatic sites that were evaluated by PSMA. There was high sensitivity and positive predictive value across all sites, including bone, lymph nodes, and visceral and soft tissues. Increased use of PSMA will undoubtedly lead to stage migration. For those who are undergoing initial staging, more men who were thought to have local disease will be found to have nodal or distant mets. 
And for those who have biochemical recurrence, metastases may be diagnosed sooner, leading to smaller population of non-metastatic M0 patients. ADT will happen sooner in these patients. The advent of PSMA will change a lot about what we know about prostate cancer, how it behaves, and should be treated at each stage moving forward since the patients will be grouped more accurately. The impact of PSMA imaging on treatment decision and outcomes will likely take years to fully understand. Music can efficiently start to answer these questions as a result of the way the collaborative works. I'll turn it over to Arvin now to give an introduction on how we plan to implement PSMA QI initiative within music. Thanks, Alice, for providing the background to what I think is going to be a really exciting novel QI project that we're pushing forward in music. And what I'd like to do now is transition to what does it look like in terms of what we're going to do within music to help address this. So as we mentioned before, one option is going to be, one of the goals is going to be op optimizing patient selection for staging. As we start to collect staging information on patients, we're hoping that we'll be able to identify uh, who, where we best utilize PSMA PET imaging in these patient populations. Similarly, in biochemical recurrence, there are a number of QI uh, measures that we can look at, um, specifically which patients would be would, would best benefit from it. Are there certain PSA thresholds at which PSMA, PSMA PET is more or less sensitive um, and where it's very has low sensitivity and specificity, maybe uh, it would not be utilized in such a setting. And then certainly, uh, we already have an existing project with in men who undergo biochemical recurrence, and then ultimately a, 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 a metric that um, that uh, measures salvage radiation therapy. And so there's a really a good amount of um, crossover there that we can integrate. And then finally, every single guideline to date has put a qualifying statement based on any recommendations they make with regards to PSMA PET, and that is is that when we perform PSMA PET imaging, we are going to identify findings um, earlier on than we would have ever identified before. And whether or not this, how this impacts clinical decision making and whether or not this changes oncologic outcomes is still to be determined. And this is where music can have possibly the greatest amount of impact um, because other sites and other, uh, other um, um, research studies that are going to be performed in this space will likely take years and years to be able to answer this question. So what exactly do we intend to collect? Um, we want to, we know that there are multiple pet imaging uh, modalities on the market. And so, uh, and not everybody has access to every single one. And so we want to understand how is PSMA utilized and also axiom and flu flucyclovine. There are going to be a number of PSMA traces that are also going to be um, FDA approved in the near future. And as more and more companies uh, release different novel tracer agents, we want to be able to collect and identify which tracer agent that they used, and then potentially being able to see are there differences in detection uh, based on the imaging tracer that they use. And then finally, we want to know the results of that study. If it was positive, where was it positive? And this is going to require a significant amount of physician input. And as a result of that, we have worked towards uh, generating a template um, that would be integrated as part of your existing notes. So what else is going to be included on that template? What we really want to understand is how the, the PET results ultimately influence physician decision-making. So, uh, and also, does it bring additional value to the patient and certainly to the parent provider? And that would be, if you perform a PSMA PET scan, are there tests that you can avoid, such as a prostate MRI or a bone scan or CT? 
Um, based on that test and the findings, did that require additional tests that needed to be performed? So, for example, a, a bone biopsy. Um, and then what was, treat what was the recommended treatment before and after the PET scan so that we can really identify how treatment was, uh, was uh, modified? So what does that dot phrase look like here? You can see us implementing it within EPIC. Um, and again, this is a specifically to EPIC, but, but we do anticipate that this template is going to be uh, performed by the physicians. It will facilitate data abstraction, make it very, very easy because certainly uh, abstractors are not going to know uh, what the physicians are thinking. Uh, and it should, um, within your consultation, it should really take less than uh, about 60 seconds. We, I really anticipate that it'll take about 30 to 40 seconds because these are already things you're thinking about during that visit. So what is the lay of the land in Michigan, uh, or specifically within music? We have more than uh, almost 12,000 prostate biopsies and 2,200 radical prostatectomies. Uh, and of those on an annual basis, there's about 6,400 patients who have newly diagnosed prostate cancer, almost 3,000 of which uh, are in unfavorable intermediate risk and high-risk prostate cancer. In addition to that, we do identify a number of newly diagnosed metastatic metastatic prostate cancer patients, and that's more around 350 or greater. And then really what that boils down to is, is that there are about 3,500 plus patients who would really be eligible for PSMA within what we capture within the music registry. That is not taking into consideration men who have advanced prostate cancer who are already being treated for metastatic disease that may use PSMA as part of disease monitoring and progression. Now, in the biochemical recurrence space, what does that look like? Uh, if we take the cumulative risk of, uh, of having biochemical recurrence in music data specifically, in, fi in, the, in five years post-treatment, about 30% of men will experience biochemical recurrence, which actually um, is about 650 or so patients per year. So great opportunity there to potentially employ PSMA PET and axiom and scanning. So whenever we um, start to have novel technologies that are available to us, we want to be good stewards of the resources that we have. And so we want to make sure that we're only ordering tests that are going to provide value and also being able to help contain the cost. What we do know is, is that historically, that if we, uh, that CT and bone scan are, have poor sensitivity. And so with the with PSMA PET, we could potentially uh, avoid the costs of a CT and bone scan. Additionally, being able to identify metastatic disease earlier means that we could potentially assign a patient with more appropriate treatment. For example, a man who has high-risk prostate cancer who had a CT and bone scan, uh, which did not identify any metastatic disease, but ultimately be transitioned to either radiation or a radical prostatectomy. However, if somebody uh, achieved a, uh, obtained a PSMA PET and they identified um, oligometastatic disease, for example, they could receive radiation and metastasis-directed therapy. They could uh, undergo uh, hormonal ablation or androgen deprivation therapy. And this potentially could modify the oncological outcome, especially if we're able to more appropriately restratify them early on in their time course. And ultimately, whether or not this is going to improve oncologic outcomes, that is the really big question here. And that's something that may take us a couple of years to answer, but certainly with the volume of data that we're able to um, gather in music, uh, I think that we are really best positioned to answer this question. So I wanted to spend just a few minutes to understand what does access to, uh, access to imaging uh, look like currently uh, in the state of Michigan. 
um, with the with the understanding that this is going to change pretty rapidly. So um, we know that there is a uh, for Medicare that there are two codes that are available starting this year. Um, you can build not uh, not just for the actual uh, PET scan itself, but you can actually build separately for the tracer. That actually helps offset some of the costs of the study for institutions who are or practices who are interested in uh, uh, pursuing PSMA PET imaging. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans, though, they are supposed to follow the Medicare rules. Um, sometimes they can be lost in translation, so the, you will need to check with a specific payer regarding that. And then private, pay, private payers, oftentimes they, they um, outsource the coverage determinations to third-party providers, uh, uh, or, and that may take time to update before it reflects what's actually being seen in the guidelines. Uh, and so what's happening right now? Uh, you will oftentimes seek prior authorization. They may or may not require you to obtain additional imaging, such as bone scan or CT. As you've seen already, the NCCN guidelines now say that that is not required. However, most payers have not caught up to that yet. And so it may end up prompting a denial and a peer-to-peer. -peer. Once you present that data to them, uh, then oftentimes it, uh, the, the approval happens relatively quickly. Now, that can be a huge time sink for a lot of practices and providers, and we're certainly cognizant of that. And we have the opportunity to help move the needle, especially with Cross, and uh, we wanted to also ultimately get feedback from the collaborative to see if this is a path that, or a direction that you'd like us to take. And then finally, what are the concrete next steps that we plan on taking? So first is to reach out to Arbometrics, who uh, hosts the music registry, uh, to incorporate the specific variables that we mentioned before that's part of the template that you've seen and then train data abstractors. And more importantly, make sure that providers use this as a dot phrase uh, so that it makes it easy for their abstractors to be able to obtain that data. And also know to actually look for it, um, especially as PSMA PET may be done outside your individual practice or, or the normal radiology channels that you usually use. Secondly, we have uh, received some uh, feedback from PUT that they'd uh, like to look at this as well, and they've had some early discussions about it, and we're going to have further discussions with them to understand where we can collaborate and potentially uh, improve the power of our data to be able to answer some of the questions that we've highlighted already. And then finally, um, is there an ability to, to collaborate or partner with industry in a way that makes sense for music? Uh, making sure that it doesn't influence our QI goals or how we think about the, the questions and the problems that we're trying to address. Um, and there certainly seems to be some promise there and we're still in very early discussions. And now I'd like to transition to our live uh, Q&A. And so uh, I really am really privileged to welcome this expert panel and uh, we'll ask that you all please enter your questions into the chat. All right, um, so we'll get started with the live Q&A. If everyone, like Dr. George said, can enter their questions into the chat, that would be great. Um, we actually have one already. Uh, actually, let me first introduce people who are on the panel. We can't see one of them. Uh, Dr. Shreve is on audio only, not video, but he will be answering some of the questions. He's the medical director of nuclear medicine uh, at Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, and he has an extensive background on best practice in pet imaging. And we also have Dr. Haffron on the line. Um, he's a urologist at MIU who has background in advanced prostate cancer. Um, all right, so first comment is anonymous and uh, says NCCN guidelines notwithstanding, every payer has refused PET scans in the setting of initial diagnosis of high risk and super high risk patients. So let's start with you, Dr. Afrin. Have you tried to order a PET scan, a PSMA PET for uh, staging? 
Yeah, no, I've started using them since January 1st. As Arvin said, Medicare uh, has a code and we can use it in our Medicare patients. Uh, you can use it in your Medicare Advantage patients. So yes, um, they are getting approved. Um, it does require a lot of peer-to-peer. So um, I, hopefully that will go away. Um, but clearly when you do your peer-to-peers, um, the, it's like their systems flag the charts, but once you talk to them, they, they, they just haven't updated their software. So it's a quick peer-to-peer. I think it's you know just based on what you showed, Alice, these are powerful tools that we need to offer our patients, especially in the uh, unfavorable, high-risk and very high-risk patients. Great. What about with private payers? Have you had success with them also? Uh, a little bit, you know, I'm focusing on the Medicare, but it does take a couple uh, phone calls uh, peer-to-peer. It, it's, it's a little bit arduous, but, you know, um, I believe in these technologies and I'm willing to make that sacrifice. And I'm sure this will go away as we get into later in the year. Okay. So we have another question from Dr. Ahmed. Uh, what specific quality and cost advantages does ordering so many PET scans provide? The tests are still early in the radiology interpretation experience and lots of equivalent results are, uh, are seen. So that, that's a great comment. Um, Dr. George, you want to tackle that one? That's the, you gave me the toughest question. <laughs> That's the toughest that question. Is, that is. <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, we knew that this, we were going to have a discussion about this, about, you know, the value that, that this test brings relative to cost. And with any new test, new drug, new therapy, new treatment, whatever it is, the costs end up being high in the beginning. And, and yes, we don't want to indiscriminately use this. And so, uh, but we do have, we do have some direction in terms of who we think it's appropriate for and the cost will come down. There are going to be, you know, there are going to be additional traces. It's going to be widely utilized and Medicare is very quickly going to reassess what the reimbursement is and, and it'll be adjusted. And so, and that's, that seems to be the natural cost for any of the, any, any, anything new in medicine. Now, what I, I, I will actually pass off this tough question to Dr. Shreve, because I know that Dr. Shreve has had a lot of experience in terms of uh, FDG PET early on. He's kind of seen the evolution of that, so that reimbursement. And, and Dr. Shreve, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think what you said, can you all hear me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think what you said is, is absolutely true. That's how it works. And, you know, it's a combination of uh, a lack of experience in the, in, in the, the uh the plethora of different payers all having their own system. And so it takes time to get them to understand exactly what you're doing. And we often take it for granted in our community of physicians that they understand what we're doing, but actually they really don't often, the people you're dealing with, they don't even know what the scan is. And so it, it does take time and the, pr- the price will come down, particularly I think with Medicare, that pass-through only goes for I think two years, something like that. And then it reverts to the standard you know, the tracer has rolled into the charge. So I think a lot of these these manufacturers are obviously trying to sort of make hay while the sun shines. They need to make their money with a high price because they know once, especially with this being prostate cancer, once Medicare says, okay, you're only gonna get the standard fee, you're not gonna get the pass-through, that profit margin will diminish substantially. I think also, Alice, to add to that, you know, it's obviously early in our experience. The data is not there, but the only we've seen a trial already come out, the Empire One trial. Um, it, it was using flocyclovine prior to um, salvage radiation uh, for biochemical recurrence. 
Um, it was run out of Emory, single site, open, open label, but um, it was an outcome study and they showed an improvement in progression-free survival in patients that underwent a flucyclovine scan prior to their salvage radiation. So Empire One, you know, great trial for one of the first outcome trials we've seen. But again, this is a, a huge opportunity to, for music um, through the collaborative to do these outcome type trials and really figure out um, are these um, tests really making an impact on, um, on oncological outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to come back to flucyclovine. We have two additional questions are somewhat related and somewhat related to what we've talked about already. Dr. Lane and Dr. Ghani, um, I'm going to read them both together because they're uh, they kind of dovetail off each other. Um, so Dr. Lane says, great information. How likely are we to convince payers to start paying up front in 2022? And how much time has it been taking the MD or other office staff? And then Dr. Ghani also contributed, is there something music can do to help with the peer-to-peer? And can providers send them a music document to the peer department via email? Uh, would that help? So I, I personally have not started ordering staging PSMA for staging. Um, but, you know, I do think that the guidelines kind of speak for themselves. Muse, additional music documents, I think, are helpful. But, um, you know, as Dr. Hafren said, we have a lot of uh, useful information already to, to back this up. But just to piggyback off of what Kirsten and Brian were asking, I think what music could do is work with Blue Cross. I mean, Blue Cross is... Um, you know, reality is the staging is usually not under 65 male, which, you know, Blue Cross represents a large percentage of, of our patients. So um, they are the most challenging right now to get approval. So anything that we can do through the collaborative to work with Blue Cross Blue Shield, our sponsor, would be very helpful on a day to day basis. Yes, definitely. Okay. Also that we, there's precedent for that. You know, when we were discussing initially the utilization of MRI as a confirmatory test or just MRI prostate in general, uh, music did meet with Blue Cross leadership and also with the leadership of Evacor. Evacor was that third party organization that I, that I, that I, that I mentioned that actually Blue Cross outsources their imaging coverage decisions to. And actually Evacor essentially makes that decision for uh, approximately hundred million lives in the, in the U S. So that's almost a third of the population. So it is something that we can help with. And then to answer Dr. Ghani's question as well, we, we could certainly potentially put together a small resource that has um, has the evidence that supports it, the guidelines. Uh, oftentimes these are just talking points because peer-to-peers are done generally over the phone, but it could be something that could be submitted as part of the authorization uh, as well. So thank you. Okay, and question from Dr. Belusu. What sites are offering PSMA PET? Now I can say there's a number of them in Southeast Michigan that are uh, St. Joe's is starting soon. I know University of Michigan has started, um, Henry Ford, I believe also. What other sites are you all aware yeah, so of? I, I, I do know, I think that Beaumont is already online. Is that right, Dr. Hafron? Yep, I think that uh, Munson was supposed to be coming online pretty soon. The real challenge in terms of scaling uh, PSMA PET is largely the logistics of transporting the tracer. Uh, the tracer is pretty volatile and it needs to basically, from the time that it's produced to getting into the patient is a matter of hours. And so uh, and so, what you'll probably, a lot of physicians on uh, who, are, who are here on this uh, webinar right now will likely start to interact with, with uh, the available commercial entities for PSMA PET that are there because they are really trying to scale this rapidly. 
Um, and actually within the last year, there's uh, within the last few months, there's been maybe eight or nine sites that have come on come online very, very quickly. So I would say that, um, and if if you wanted to be connected uh, with, um, with, uh, with the, the Lantheus team, which is the commercially available one currently, uh, certainly we can assist with that. Dr. Havron can assist with that as well. Okay. Uh, Dr. Shreve, um, this is a question for you. Uh, do you consider Axiomen a better scan for biochemical recurrence? Uh, and would that be in radical prostatectomy patients or radiation patients or both? And then additionally, do you think that there's still a role for Axiomen if both tests are available in the center? Um, just based on my anecdotal experience on the performance of the tracers, I, I think it's totally PMSA. It just has such a much, much higher target-to-background ratio. I think you showed some of that in your data. Uh, the images are they're just phenomenal. I mean, I've not seen target-to-background ratios like that ever, except maybe with FDG and, and melanoma, and that's a good melanoma, or really poorly differentiated uh, uh, cell carcinoma. Um, it's, it's really phenomenal. So... Our biggest problem really, and, and this has always been a problem Pat, is that we see things and we don't really know what they are. And so we have always had a problem with false positives. And so that's, I think, somewhat of an issue here, although the, the prostate cancer is so much hotter than the other sources of uptake that it, this may be a lot easier than FDG was where we had a lot of other physiologic sources of uptake that we had to sort out over the years. And, and these things just light up so much. And you're just amazed. You look at the CT and you go, wow, that's actually a three millimeter lift node. There it is. Dr. So yeah, I, I think this is a game changer in terms of uh, what I've seen in PET. Thank you. And Dr. Sri, we had had a little bit of a discussion about this earlier. And I think that this was kind of part of an earlier question in this session. Is there variation in interpretation? Is it a skill set that needs to be acquired? You know, that was the that was kind of some of the historic barriers with prostate MRI. Um, but do you do you think that that's the same for PSMA PET? Do you yeah, think that yeah, be a there's, there's going to be a learning curve? Yeah, I'm on a learning curve. Um, you, you just have to see a lot of cases and and sort out as much feedback you can get as to whether you were right or wrong. Uh, I don't know exactly how that could be coordinated there's going to be a lot of variation in how these things are interpreted. That's always going to be the case. And also how the scans are done. I think we discussed that briefly, which, yeah. which could be an issue too. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Dr. Lane adds that current PSMA uh, pet sites, a lot of them were mentioned already, West Michigan Spectrum. Um, oh, that's in West Michigan, the Spectrum in Southeast University of Michigan, Henry Ford, Beaumont, St. Joe's, and then Munson. I think that's, you know, that's, I think all of those, um, sites were already mentioned. Okay. Uh, so great. So, you know, getting on more to treatment of uh, advanced prostate cancer, I know Dr. Haffern, this is one of your areas. So with the stage migration that we're going to see, would you treat patients who have findings on PSMA and not on conventional imaging similar to how you are right now? Or would you be offering more local treatment? I think that's a great question. And what we have to realize is that all of our data today, all our registrational trials, all our uh, uh, therapeutics are based on conventional imaging. The FDA hasn't validated PET imaging yet. It will come. 
Um, but all our studies are based on PSMA imaging. So yes, uh, we've already started to treat patients based on PSMA imaging. Um, I think we see it a lot in the non-metastatic CRPC space. We see it in the MCSPC space. So we are finding disease in more locations than we thought. So we may not consider localized radiation in the MCSPC space. And then also in the NMCRPC space, we're seeing this disease category shrink significantly um, so that we're no longer seeing that many patients and can treat them appropriately um, as uh, uh, metastatic CRPC. Okay. So say you had a patient who on staging imaging had, you know, one small lesion that was picked up, a high-risk patient. Um, would you put that person on you know, combination therapy with ADT or what would you do in that scenario? You know, if we found one spot, you know, an MCSPC, you know, there's a metastatic castrate sensitive, that's essentially low volume disease. Um, so typically we would treat that patient with primary radiation to the prostate, add uh, no, a novel hormone. Um, there's a lot of work being done on stereotactic metastatic um, radi radiotherapy or SABR. Um, that's mostly phase two data, hasn't shown an OS yet. It's mostly single center. So we'll have to wait for that data. But I think, you know, what the current NCCN guidelines recommend for low volume metastatic CSPC, again, is primary radiotherapy plus a novel hormone and um, plus or minus if you want to go into the uh, treating the metastatic site. I think overall, these powerful tools and, the where, and where we're going with metastatic prostate cancer is we're getting very aggressive, you know? And when you look at the data from where we started in, you know, 2015, when DOSA, you know, the charter data came out to where we are in 2022, we are seeing, you know, me median survivals go beyond five years. So it's very exciting. You know, the PSMA, the PET imaging is just hopefully, you know, time will tell, but uh, anticipate will improve those overall survivals for, for this deadly cancer. Thank you. Great answer. So Dr. Stockel has added that Lansing also has PSMA PET. Okay. Um, so that's great. So uh, what about for lymph node dissection? You know, if, if you see uh, lymph nodes that are hot on PSMA PET, but would otherwise, you know, be too small, let's say two lymph nodes, or I'm sorry, a lack of lymph nodes, would you omit uh, um, a lymph node dissection? That's a tough question, you know, because we're, you know, with these new tools, we're going into new spots that we've never dealt with. So, I mean, me personally, a negative predictive value of around 80%-ish for both of, for both the agents, I'm still going to do a lymph node dissection, you know, because that will change the course of his, his disease. Um, you know, you're going to miss 20% of your patients. So I don't think we're ready to say that yet. But, you know, I think the key is these, these imaging studies are so powerful. We're going to be asking new questions and being in new spots of where we've never been before. So very excited about it. Okay. So it looks like time is up for us. So thank you everyone for your insightful comments. Uh, this was great. So I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Dow. Thanks Alice for that great uh, update and talk on the prostate cancer initiative. My name is Casey Dow. I'm the director of the Music Rocks Initiative focusing on kidney stones. 
And today we're going to be bringing you some uh, discussion on optimizing pain management after shockwave lithotripsy. To kind of lay things out from the beginning, our goal today is to help urologists understand how pain is being managed after shockwave lithotripsy and emphasize that we can eliminate opiate prescribing after shockwave. Uh, emphasize that we'd like to better understand the patient experience after shockwave lithotripsy with enrollment in ROCKS Pro. Um, uh, highlight that data integrity is vital uh, and make a plug for templating uh, in our operative reports for our abstractors. And then is, uh, also um, provide an opportunity to lead the urologic community towards evidence-based guidelines when the, with a potential clinical trial. So uh, to kick things off, I'd like to highlight a massive victory for the ROCKS Collaborative and Music as a whole. And that's how we've optimized pain management in ureteroscopy. You can see with multiple different interventions, we've reduced opioid prescribing after ureteroscopy from 93% to 22% over the course of about four years, which is incredibly tremendous. And this has led to tangible benefits for patients. This 2,100 fewer patients receiving opiates per year, less pills in the community, and 140 fewer patients becoming opioid dependent during that time, which again is a massive win for this collaborative. However, uh, we see a different story in shockwave lithotripsy. What we see here in blue uh, is the shockwave lithotripsy opiate prescribing from 2016 to 2020, and in red is the decline in opiate prescribing for ureteroscopy. We started collecting NSAID data in 2018, but we've settled out at a rate of around 43% opiate prescribing in shockwave and 25% ureteroscopy. So I ask myself, why do we see this difference? Thanks to all those that participate in the survey we've sent out, um, we asked a question to urologists to kind of get at this difference. Which medications do you commonly prescribe for post-shockwave lithotripsy pain management? And I should emphasize that this is a check-all that apply sort of answer, so it could be multimodal pain relief. But interestingly, 87% of respondents indicated that in some form or fashion, patients were getting NSAIDs, uh, whereas only a quarter said that they were giving opiates routinely. So what we're going to look at now is some of our registry data and see if we can confirm these survey results. What we see here is opiate prescribing rates by practice across music from 2018 to 2020. And like many things we see uh, in the collaborative, there's wide variation in opiate prescribing uh, with very little opiate prescribing towards the left side of the curve and higher rates towards the right with uniform prescribing. But the mean rate of opiate prescribing across the collaborative is still 56%. So a bit of discordance with our survey results. Now, if we were to overlay in orange the NSAID prescribing, we see that the story is somewhat different. There are certainly practices on the left side here that are prescribing them in many cases. However, the mean rate of NSAID prescribing, un, uh, uh, unlike what we saw in our survey, is 14% versus the 87% who say they're prescribing them. Now, I acknowledge this might be for many reasons. NSAIDs are often over the counter, um, which would really highlight our need to template our operative reports so that we're putting this valuable information in the registry. But it does bear mention that there's some discordance between survey results and what we're seeing in the collaborative. If we were to finally overlay emergency department visits, what we see is it doesn't appear there's much of a difference whether we're prescribing opiates or not or NSAIDs or not. Our rates of ED visits for shockwave are quite low at around 3% with very little variation across practices. So to summarize what we showed previously, the registry is telling us that 55% of patients are getting opiates, which is different than the one quarter of respondents who said they're prescribing them, and a low fraction are getting non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So again, something that we need to investigate further. It's important to mention, however, that though the emergency department visit rates for shockwave lithotripsy are low, uh, the vast majority of visits 
that do occur, and this is 182 visits over the course of 2018 to 2020, are due to pain. And so certainly this is something that we need to keep in mind. I will tell you that if we queried the registry to look at whether different pain management strategies, NSAIDs versus opiates versus Flomax versus nothing, uh, had any impact on ED visit rates, the answer is no. So no matter how we're uh, managing folks' pain, uh, uh, it seems that the ED visit rate is similar, and it's quite low at somewhere around 3%. So as we thought about this a bit more, uh, one of the things that we clearly thought about was the risks of NSAIDs, especially as it relates to shock with lithotripsy. And one of those fears may be the fear of a hematoma. You can see a representative image of one here. Um, this takes an outpatient procedure from uh, a seemingly innocuous uh, uh, a procedure to something that can be quite severe for patients. When we asked uh, the survey respondents why they might not prescribe NSAID, so this is the 24 respondents who said that they're not giving NSAIDs routinely, 63% did highlight the risk of a hematoma or bleeding. So clearly this is an important factor. But if we look at the registry again, what we can see here is uh, that our rate of hematoma across all practices is quite, quite low. So uh, what you see here in the chart is the rates of hematoma in 2018, 19, and 20, ranging from one to six cases per year. That leads to a cumulative percent of 0.2% of patients experiencing a hematoma that's symptomatic after shockwave lithotripsy or two out of a thousand patients. So it's a very infrequent event. And I am happy to inform us all that we're uh, doing better than the data would say, which reports that the overall rate of symptomatic hematoma is between 0.5 and 0.7% of patients or five to seven out of a thousand patients. I think this underscores uh, some of the lack of guidance on this topic. And so the second half of our talk uh, delivered by my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Naveen Kachru, is going to be uh, uh, looking at this aspect of things uh, as we move forward. So I'll turn it over to you, Naveen. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. When it comes to advice about how best to manage pain for our patients after shockwave lithotripsy, there is currently no clear guidance on post-shockwave pain management in either the AUA or EAU guidelines to help support our practice. If we review the advice given by many of our leading peer institutions across the US, many request that patients avoid NSAIDs for a period ranging between five to 10 days prior to shockwave, but none comment on what they recommend after shockwave. To understand practices within our own great state of Michigan, the music survey that recently went out to the collaborative last month, and we would like to thank all of you that participated, found that 65% of respondents instruct patients to stop NSAIDs prior to shockwave, with most of these requesting it to be stopped for more than five days prior to the procedure. In terms of post-shockwave prescribing, 88% of respondents felt that it was appropriate to start NSAIDs immediately following the procedure. So the question that is probably on many of your minds, especially for those of you that may have reservations on prescribing NSAIDs in this setting, is, is it safe for me to prescribe NSAIDs after shockwave? When you analyze the evidence base, there is interestingly very limited data in this regard, as most publications have predominantly focused on assessing intraoperative analgesic practices at the time of shockwave lithotripsy, with a paucity of literature assessing this in the post-operative period. One prospective double-blind randomized study from the University of Rochester in New York compared the use of one pre-op and one post-op dose of rofecoxib, a COX-2 inhibitor, used 24 hours after shockwave with a group that did not receive rofecoxib, but all were treated with opioids post-procedure. They found that those receiving rofecoxib 
had significantly better pain control for the seven days post-shockwave, and there was no increased incidence of untoward events such as bleeding or GI disturbance side effects. To further guide us as to whether NSAIDs are safe to use postoperatively, when we look at the literature in all areas of surgery, the answer is a resounding yes. A systematic review and meta-analysis that was published last year in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons assessed the risk of bleeding from postoperative NSAID use. It analyzed 74 different surgical studies and represented a total of over 150,000 study patients and included all surgical specialties, including three from urology. And interestingly, this found that there was no difference in hematoma rates, blood transfusion rates, or need to return to the OR and conclusively states that NSAIDs are unlikely to be the cause of postoperative bleeding complications following surgery. If we look at the literature closer to home, specifically for renal surgery, in a double-blind randomized control trial from Mitch Humphrey's group at the Mayo Clinic, Arizona, they compared a continuous IV toroidal infusion with placebo that started immediately following the procedure for patients undergoing either laparoscopic donor nephrectomy or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. They noticed significantly better pain control with no differences in creatinine or hemoglobin between the two groups. The toroidal group also required less narcotics postoperatively. So this showed us that NSAIDs are not only safe to use, but also effective in managing pain post-renal surgery. Much like music has achieved in other arenas and rolling on the back of the success of other prior initiatives, Music would like to work towards eliminating opioid, opioid prescribing after shockwave with a goal of creating a pain control optimization pathway after shockwave, much like what we have for ureteroscopy, and allow this to become a new value-based reimbursement metric in the future. We also want to gain a better understanding of the patient experience after shockwave lithotripsy and would like to encourage recruitment to the Music Rocks Patient Reported Outcomes, or PRO, initiative to do this. Understanding the patient perspective is so critical in moving forward with this. This gra graph that you see here represents the pain intensity scores recorded amongst patients from our current Music Pro data at baseline, seven to 10 days post-procedure, and also four to six weeks after their procedure, using the PROMISE questionnaire for pain assessment, which is a validated questionnaire in this regard, but is not disease or procedure specific. Pain intensity score is on the y-axis and the mean pain score that the average person in the US is feeling is 50. The red line represents our ureteroscopy patients in the registry and we have a good number of patients involved via PRO to populate this and understand their pain and their experience. Their pain scores did decrease over time as one would expect. And when you break down this cohort, the data did show that there was no difference between those receiving NSAIDs or opioids in terms of their pain scores. Interestingly, shockwave patients appear to have pain scores below the mean pain score of the average American throughout all time periods, which either represents that they are experiencing pain differently, but may also be due to the limited data that we have for this population. What this really highlights to us is that the need for us to better understand the pain experience of our shockwave patients, and especially by capturing their data via recruitment to ROX Pro to allow us to make the same inferences that supported the opioid-free ureteroscopy pathways for music. 
In Music Rocks Pro, eligible patients undergoing either ureteroscopy or shockwave are identified by the participating practices and can be enrolled as long as the patients have a valid email address. The patients will receive an online questionnaire administered at baseline seven to 10 days and then four to six weeks following their kidney stone surgery. This contains 26 simple to complete questions covering aspects related to lower urinary tract symptoms, patient satisfaction with their surgery, and also stent utilization. The whole process is very simple to conduct with no phone calls or mailings required and very limited time input from the practice site, as most aspects are automated and handled by the coordination center. So please consider participating if you are not already a participating practice. Pro participation will be a future QI participation metric for our practices for both ureteroscopy and shockwave patients. So we certainly encourage early engagement. In our pursuit to identify if more guidance is on the horizon with regards to post-operative shockwave lithotripsy pain management, a review of clinicaltrials.gov identified 48 registered studies in the domain of shockwave lithotripsy at various states of progress. And when you break these down further, four looked at intraoperative pain management, four will be looking at alternative pain managements, but interestingly, none are looking at the use of NSAIDs postoperatively. We feel that as a collaborative, we may be well poised to set up and conduct a novel, robust future clinical trial in this regard. So your feedback, thoughts and participation will be greatly appreciated. To summarize what we have discussed this evening, Casey showed data from our music registry that there is a wide variation in current pain management practices post-shockwave, which is likely related to the lack of guidance that we have in this. Our goal is to standardize shockwave lithotripsy pain management and create a pain control optimization pathway, much like was done in ureteroscopy. As Casey also mentioned, it can be sometimes hard to discern at the time of data extraction whether patients were prescribed medications or whether they were encouraged to use over-the-counter medications, which could account for the partial discordance we, seen, we saw between the survey results and the actual practice patterns recorded in the registry. We also want to implement a better templating practice to allow better data to be collected overall, but also specifically to ensure that accurate post-op management and analgesic practices are being appropriately captured at abstraction. We have shown that there is potential for us to move towards a safe opioid-free shockwave lithotripsy pathway. And as we move forward with this, it is imperative that we continue to monitor the patient experience to ensure that this crucial metric is not adversely affected so please join Roxpro, the Roxpro initiative if you have not already done so. What we also show that there's a surprising lack of data for post-shockwave lithotripsy pain management, and our unique collaborator is well poised to provide the much needed guidance urologists across the country and globally need to address this gap in the literature as we continually strive to make Michigan number one for kidney stone care. We are also well positioned for a potential future clinical trial in this, in this area, so please watch this space. Thank you everyone for your attention and participating in this session. And we will now move to the live discussion. Thanks so much, Naveen. Um, and uh, again, uh, welcome to those who have joined us tonight. Uh, we've already heard a great prostate session and we're gonna be transitioning to kidney after this Q&A. So I wanna introduce our panelists here. We have. Uh, Naveen Kachru, who you just heard from, 
uh, from Henry Ford, Kershid Ghani, uh, our fearless leader, the, the director of music with a, obviously a special interest in global expertise in kidney stones. And then Harry West, who I'm sure many urologists across the state recognize and are grateful to have in your rooms when you're having patients undergo shockwave lithotripsy. He brings decades of experience uh, as a technician for uh, UMS uh, and can provide us some context today. So I definitely want to get to some of the questions in the chat um, uh, to kick things off. Um, uh, And and many of these uh, relate to the presentation itself. Um, so an anonymous uh, question came from the group indicating um, or, or wondering whether it could be the age of the urologists um, in the collaborative that might drive some of the changes we're seeing uh, or the persistence in opiate prescribing with shockwave. I know from having conversations with some of our larger groups, such as uh, uh, Michigan Institute of Urology and Comprehensive Urology, that uh, uh, sometimes shockwave lithotripsy is consolidated to just a few providers. Um, uh, and certainly that could change uh, who's uh, giving these medications. I think this both presents us a challenge, um, but as also an opportunity. It's much harder as we've learned to move the needle across these practices if we're trying to get a group like Comprehensive uh, through leadership or MIU to get you know dozens of doctors to, to coalesce around a topic. But if it's just a couple in a group, I, I already believe talking with Jason Haffron and some of his associates, and others at these larger groups that we can begin to tackle that. But I, I agree with that post uh, or question. It definitely could be the age of the urologist. Do you see, Harry, um, uh, given the fact that you've kind of observed this across the state uh, uh, for, for uh, a long time now, that there's a difference in the way the, quote, younger docs and maybe the older doctors are, are viewing the use of NSAIDs and or opiates uh, across Michigan? Yeah, I think in some of the places now we're seeing uh, – where they're using sort of uh, at the end of the procedure, um, giving IV toradol. Um, there's a, a lot better sort of recovery in the patients. Um, the places that, should we say, there are more single urologists um, might be more isolated and still carrying on with the opioid prescription than those who might be in a larger sort of more like the, like the university setting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really good insight. And and what Harry just said kind of dovetails into a question we got from Hector uh, Pimentel, which uh, asks, when do doctors feel comfortable starting NSAIDs after shockwave lithotripsy? Naveen did a great job of presenting the survey data in the second half of the talk. And and again, thanks to the 120 plus urologists who responded to that survey. That's incredible with short notice over the holidays, but 90% of urologists felt that NSAIDs could be started, quote, immediately after shockwave lithotripsy. So I think, Hector, to your question, um, we're not really providing routine guidance on that, but your question was, do we wait till hematuria is resolved? I think that's a reasonable consideration, but I think Harry just mentioned that many of us, just like I do with ureteroscopy, and I think many do, are giving NSAIDs in the form of Toradol under the sedative or anesthesia for shockwave. So um, my general sense is um, that that is what we're doing um, certainly at Michigan Medicine. Um, and, and I'd be curious to know if that's the policy at other groups, but it, it seemed that there was overwhelming support for immediate starts to NSAIDs. Naveen, what are you guys doing at Henry Ford? Yeah, thanks, Casey. Um, I think this is a great discussion to have about you know trying to introduce you know the non-steroidals more into shockwave. 
Um, at Henry Ford, we are using Toradol. Um, it's commonly used post-shockwave. Um, as you kind of mentioned, you know, the shockwave is kind of funneled to certain practitioners. Um, you know, only some of us are doing shockwave more than the others. Um, but I think given the, you know, sort of, as, as I mentioned in my talk, dovetailing from the, the benefits we've seen among the ureterostomy population and moving towards opioid-free opioid pathways, I think we are at Henry Ford trying to move towards opioid-free pathways in shockwave as well. Um, and I, I know you mentioned, you alluded to some of the maybe older urologists and their practices. Um, certainly, you know, at Henry Ford, we have residents and residents are very much up to date with the literature, up to date with trying to move towards those opioid pathways. They're part of that population who, who are really uh, sort of in tune with what is going on with the opioid pandemic. So sometimes being in a centre where you have residents can often sort of maybe steer the, the pathways of maybe some of the, the more older urologists who may not be as familiar with wanting to use non-steroidals after shockwave. So um, a couple other questions that we want to get to. And again, um, please feel free to drop your questions in the chat and they're being triaged to me. Um, it, it, if you see my face getting nervous, it's because there's hundreds coming in, which means you're doing a great, great job. Um, so one of the questions, which is a good one, gets to the nuts and bolts of the registry. And the question from an anonymous person was, how do you document in music if a patient was discharged with an opiate, but those opiates were not prescribed by the urologist? Meaning, say for instance, uh, they were seen by their primary care doctor for colic and then had shockwave. Um, the answer to that question is it doesn't matter. Um, the abstractors are trained to look through the period of, of case entry and in that uh, period after um, the surgery, whether it be URS and shockwave, and find any prescri prescriptions. I will say um, that I think shockwave is a somewhat different cohort. Um, when Naveen presented the PROMISE data, which again is our, our pro- um, uh, pain intensity and interference, we see that baseline patients undergoing shockwave are far less symptomatic than those getting ureteroscopy. I think if I were to, and maybe Naveen could chime in or Kershid, I, I want to say that many of these people in whom we're doing shockwave are either minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic, but are seen to have a larger renal stone that is amenable to shockwave lithotripsy. And so I think this is probably less likely in the shockwave cohort and could be more prevalent in the URS cohort. Uh, where we see our opiate rates are are low. What do you think about that idea, Naveen? Yeah, I think I agree with you. A lot of the time when we are using shockwave, it is often for those kind of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic renal stones. Um, I think just the way the nature of the way the shockwave works that we're reliant on the machine coming on certain days means that we're not very much like sometimes some places in Europe where they do hot, you know, hot, hot lithotripsies for, for acute, you know, ureteral stones. And um, we don't always have that liberty of uh, being able to say, oh, you know, patient comes in the ER or we can give them shockwave today unless they're fortunate enough to come on a day when we have the shockwave machine. So I think maybe just the way our practices are given the scheduling of the shockwaves, we often rely on it being more for the asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients. And the ones who are more symptomatic for whatever reason, we are probably going to moving towards ureteroscopy for is what my thoughts would be. Uh, yeah, I, I have a couple of comments on that, Casey, and and, and I you know I want to thank Casey and, and Naveen for the excellent talks. And, and I mean, this is really amazing that there isn't much that you know there isn't much literature, and you're able to both provide some music registry data and then the survey data. So so in your you mentioned Europe, Naveen, you know, doing hot shockwaves. I remember the time you know when I was doing shockwave in the UK, we would give diclofenac as the analgesic to do shockwave, right? It's a, it's a non-steroidal. So there was no concern with bleeding at that point from, from that perspective. And then on the comment, Casey, that you said about, you know, that came in from the chat around 
the, the data entry and then the abstract is a come, you know, what I would put a, a plea to all the urologists who are listening is make better data. Just put in your intentions in the notes better, because I suspect, Casey, that the doctors are probably prescribing non-steroidals, but we're just not you know, noting that in the record. So that, that would be important to do. And then, you know, I, I, I wanted just to say that Harry, you know, you're going around the state doing the shockwave with, with, with many, many folks, you have a real, you know, it's amazing. I just realized you have a major role now because you could actually start to have a discussion with some of these providers and start to alert them to the work that music's doing that. And that may be, opiates are not necessary in, in most patients. I've already started that discussion, um, but some people like to say, um, I want to have a good sleep tonight. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's an important comment. Isn't it? Room. Yeah. We, we, we've heard the same comment around, uh, I want to put a stent in because I don't want to be troubled. And, and, and I, think, I think over time, hopefully, Casey, you know, as you collect more and more data on this, we might be able to convince people. Um, I, yeah, I'm going to stop there because I'm, I'm, I know you've got more questions coming into the chat, Casey. Yeah, so we just got a, a little bit of a flurry here. I wanted to piggyback off one of Kirsten's comments briefly. Um, templating is key here with Shockwave and with NSAIDs in particular, because as someone wisely pointed out, um, NSAIDs are over the counter in almost all circumstances. And so our abstractors will not know that you told a patient to go to Walgreens or CVS and buy an NSAID and take it. So it'd be very easy at the end of your operative report to say, I'm sending the patient home with Motrin. Whether you prescribe that or not, your abstractor will pull that from your notes. So that's key. Um, and around the NSAID topic, um, we're getting a flurry of more comments here, which I think are, are, are greatly appreciated from Brad Rosenberg, uh, and, and, and to a lesser extent from others who are saying that if you're going to give an NSAID afterwards, it may be beneficial, even if it's just for patient's peace of mind to get a prescription strength NSAID. Um, <clears throat> we can quibble about whether the data says that ibuprofen is more effective or less effective or equivalent effectiveness is Toradol, but I agree with that comment wholly. Um, assuming it's not costly for patients, me telling them that I'm giving them a prescription strength NSAID really does seem to help them sleep at night. Um, and so I think that's uh, um, very useful. Brad um, Rosenberg chimed in that his experience, interestingly, is that most patients don't need any pain meds post-shockwave, and so he doesn't prescribe anything. And that's actually funny that you brought that up because uh, Kershid and I uh, had a discussion, and we didn't present this much, but there is a cohort of providers in music where there's a shockwave done and nothing is given, zero. And we all immediately think, well, that must be just a glitch, right? But to hear that that's actually happening, and as I said earlier, that does not seem to be impacting negatively ED visit rates is fascinating. And I think that further underscores, Brad, um, how we have a great opportunity to, at the very least, omit opiates. And even in those patients, as a chat question came in, that have contraindications to NSAIDs, like bariatric patients, though that's loosening a bit, Think of other pain regimens, right? In, in URS, we said, okay, if you've got renal failure or an allergy to an NSAID, in that case, give opiates. It seems that we have providers that give nothing. And so if someone has that sort of a situation with NSAIDs, maybe lean on Tylenol, lean on Flomax, some of these other agents that we know provide uh, both pain control and, and relief of symptoms. I want to make sure I'm not missing any questions here. Um, 
Uh, Eric Ratchford just um, uh, questioned, for clarification, are the majority of surgeons limiting NSAIDs still five to seven days prior to shockwave lithotripsy? That's a fascinating question. Um, the survey indicated that most urologists are holding these drugs prior to shockwave. And if you looked, the distribution was majority. So like 75% plus at least five days before. Um, but that's a further area of study that we could consider in the future. We don't capture data on preoperative NSAIDs, but my suspicion is that that five-day window might not really make a difference as far as hematoma or outcomes. What, what are your thoughts on that, Naveen? What are, what are you doing? And, and Harry, what are you seeing with, with providers? Are they canceling cases if patients are coming in and had, having taken NSAIDs? We're not talking about aspirin, please. Um, this, is, this is like Motrin, ibuprofen, Aleve, things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, thanks, Casey. I, I agree with you. In terms of stopping NSAIDs, I don't tell my patients to stop NSAIDs before. I'm more than happy to start them straight away. Um, a lot of the literature looking at, and I think the big thing that, as you mentioned from the survey, people are worried about bleeding hematoma risks. A lot of the data that, I mean, as I say, you mentioned, obviously we saw limited data out there in this, but what we what limited data there is suggests other factors are risk factors for the hematomas, like uncontrolled hypertension, patient age. Those are more pressing factors maybe than the NSAID use. And I certainly think one of the great things that we have with Michigan is a great network of people who are part of this group who can actually contribute to some of this data and provide those answers that we really don't have in the literature. And I think if we can provide though that guidance to urologists, it won't just benefit people in Michigan. I think urologists in general will really benefit from that because we just don't have the data, but you know, and, and we need it. What are your thoughts on that, Harry? When you were over in the UK prior to coming over to Michigan and doing these cases, was were NSAIDs routinely held prior to shockwave lithotripsy? Yeah, we used to hold aspirin seven days and uh, Motrin basically five days, and uh, Coumadin five days, um, those sort of time periods. But because the scheduling for as well was usually like uh, once a month in a lot of centers or maybe uh, once or twice a month, um, a lot of these lists were set up quite well in advance. Patients who were asymptomatic with no stent, they might have been on the schedule for uh, three months already. So they had plenty of time uh, to be educated as to what not to do. So while we have the lithotripsy expert on, the question I have for you is, we're unique in the state of Michigan in that we really have two models of lithotriptor that we're using uniformly. So we can all all say, at least as far as what we're delivering and as far as shocks, we're doing it pretty much the same. Do you think that some of this old guidance might be relative to the more uh, destructive type of tissue effect seen with the Dornier lithotriptor that was the water bath lithotriptor, the HM3, and now we're much more focused with the two that we stock in Michigan? Well, interestingly enough, the focus difference between um, the traditional water bath and the Dornier uh, compact Delta II that goes around Michigan, in, especially on the western side and that, and the Wolf, is a substantial difference in the focal area. So you're capturing a lot more innocent tissue, as well as the stone on the, uh, the old water bath one. The focus was 12 millimeters wide. Wow. The Dornier Delta is six and a half millimeters wide. The wolf is two and a half millimeters wide. Yeah. So there's a lot less uh, tissue 
encompassed in the focus in addition to the stone itself. Yeah, that's that's really, I think, helpful for us to contextualize. Um, there's a couple other questions that are coming in here. Um, ben Stockton asked if we'd be having any creatinine or GFR criteria for NSAID use. I think that's going to be important. And down the pike, we're hoping to have some guidelines that uh, suggest what we need to do. And then another question came in from an anonymous person wondering if there's a template um, in our operative reports to capture data. We do have one. It'll be on us to distrib distribute that to practices um, so that we can make sure that you guys have that readily available to you. Um, the, uh, uh, I think that's kind of the end of the questions. Um, uh, actually we have one more from, from, uh, uh, that just came in asking if there are gradations of contraindications to NSAIDs. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure I fully understand the question, but I think, um, what he's asking is, you know, there are hard contraindications NSAID like allergy or really bad renal function, and then some that are modest. And I think we can certainly sort that out in the form of a pain management pathway that we could bet with some pharmacists, et cetera. So um, great chat. Um, uh, I really appreciate everybody's engagement and, and the expertise of our panel taking their time out. So I'm going to turn things over now to the kidney team and looking forward to another great presentation. Thank you all. Thanks, Casey. Thank you for this opportunity to discuss the management of music's kidneys roadmap to the management of T1 renal masses. At the heart of this is really to provide patients in Michigan the quality assessment and management while safely reducing the burden of treatment in appropriate patients. In music, just over 3,000 patients collected in our registry with approximately 50% of suspicious renal masses are observed. This has really held true over the last few years. Well, how, how does this compare to the literature? Well, similar to the DISARM study where 45% um, of patients were observed. And when using similar criteria to population-based studies, we would be looking at rates of around 4.4 to 6.8%, which is not dissimilar. But of, these, of note is that these studies are of small renal masses and not TE1B, which we observe in the region of 20%. There is significant variation across participating practices, ranging from 7 to 72%. But what we don't know is this, is this the right amount and are these the right patients? What can we learn from the guidelines with regards to appropriate candidates? They generally agree on surveillance for lesions less than two centimeters and perhaps up to four centimeters for cystic lesions and T1 tumors when competing risks of mortality exist. But they are rather vague in classifying the latter. If we were to benchmark ourselves against those criteria, we can see that they generally, we generally observe these patients very well, with 60%, 67% of those with solid lesions under two centimeters, and up to 87% in elderly patients with sub three centimeter lesions. Why is this important? Well, if our priority is to improve the quality of care for renal mass patients and reduce the burden of over-treatment in the state of Michigan, we do need to know how to do this. What does success look like for these patients? and we need to be able to quantify this in th three to five years. To put this into context, if I received a referral for a 71-year-old patient with a 2.9 centimeter renal mass, can I just pick him straight for a robotic partial nephrectomy? Well, in some cases, surgery can be avoided with additional imaging, and in some surgery can be avoided with a biopsy. This 71-year-old man may be comorbid and have limited life expectancy, and it's in this scenario, competing risks of mortality may outweigh the risks of renal cancer in the favor of surveillance. 
And also considering treatment, some patients experience complications, even in the best of most experienced of hands, even with standard low complexity tumors. Appropriate imaging clearly has a role, as we see here, where pre and post contrast imaging is able to characterize this lesion as a Bosniak 2 cyst, and no need, no, there is no need to perform any treatment on this patient. In this example, a comorbid patient with, some C, with CKD3 um, biopsy shows either a benign neoplasm or at worst a low grade cancer, and surveillance would be an appropriate management strategy. And as we as a collaborative have published on QI opportunities for reducing non-malignant pathology at the time of surgery and utilizing renal mass biopsy can reduce the burden of intervention in appropriate candidates. And one has to remember that surgery, even in the, even in the low complexity tumor setting, does have the risks. This was a case of a patient post partial nephrectomy who bled after restarting Plavix. This was shared by Dr. Rogers, an expert in robotic partial nephrectomy. Fortunately, the patient was able to have access to embolization, but this may have turned out differently for different patients in different scenarios. Just a reminder and a shout out to the Virtual Tumor Board, which has been a great forum for us to gain some collective wisdom on difficult cases and scenarios. And I would encourage those who haven't to try it out and post a case for discussion. So how can we improve? With the goal to trying to gain consensus within our collaborative on how to select, evaluate and survey appropriate patients, we convened a virtual appropriateness panel in the fall of 2020. And this included 26 urologists, um, of which most were practicing in community setting with almost 70% fellowship trained. This used a virtual Delphi process with over three rounds of questions to try and gain some consensus on patient selection, initial evaluation, surveillance testing, delayed intervention and graduation. And this was all really what helped us develop this roadmap you see here. And um, I have a copy here for me as well. Um, and you know, th this is focusing on the evaluation and surveillance phase of patients considering surveillance of their renal mass. The physician facing and patient facing parts of this is in a similar concept to the prostate cancer surveillance roadmap. I'll be focusing on the evaluation phase and Dr. Lane will be diving into the surveillance phase later. So with regards to the evaluation phase for physicians, we've separated this into the steps of evaluation to appropriate testing, estimated estimation of life expectancy, determination of appropriateness of surveillance and engaging in shared decision-making. With regards to appropriate testing, this includes obtaining appropriate multi-phase imaging in either CT or MRI, chest imaging with CT thorax preferred for tumor to be as greater than five centimeters, assessment of proteinuria and renal function, and consideration of biopsy. To put this into perspective, current rates are 93% for imaging of tumors, 60% for the chest, and 80 to 85% of renal function assessment, which has been published in our in, um, in our guidelines to adherence paper. And we've also published on the fact that 16% of our renal masses undergo biopsy. So perhaps there is some room for improvement and hopefully this roadmap can be serve as a reminder to improve in this in the future. Estimating life expectancy was one decision that the consensus panel um, found to be helpful in decision-making for appropriateness for surveillance. A study from Hopkins looked at CIA Medicare data and found that cardiovascular index provided good survival risk stratification and better segregation of Charleston comorbidity index zero to one. 
Dr. Lane and Dr. Singh have put together a life expectancy calculator incorporating the cardiovascular index. And this can be accessed with the QR code seen on the left. And this takes you to the Ask Music app. After filling out the patient demographics, you can then get the patient's anticipated life expectancy. This is also available in the roadmap in a table form, as you can see on the right here. And this is an example of a patient with a six centimeter renal mass with age and increasing cardiovascular index. And you can see as the cardiovascular index increases with increasing age, the life expectancy decreases. Determining appropriateness, as indicated by our consensus panel, is multifactorial, but essentially incorporates life expectancy versus tumor size. With increasing tumor size and, long, and longer life expectancy, the appropriateness of surveillance decreases. The panel did feel that initial surveillance with short interval repeat imaging is an appropriate option for all patients with tumors up to, the age, up to three centimeters. And you can see as in the first, column, the first row of this chart, all patients with a life expectancy of less than a year would be appropriate for surveillance or observation. Then in step four, engaging in shared decision-making. This is really putting the regards to expectations of cancer control, renal function and mobility against the different management options available, including surveillance, ablation, robotic partial nephrectomy, open partial nephrectomy and radical nephrectomy. And really trying to give um, the patients um, the understanding of where they would stand with each one of these options. What, what can the patient expect to see um, in this roadmap? Well, patients have probably never seen a renal mass before coming to the clinic. And with this collection of images, we're really trying to put their tumors into context for them. So we have some images of small tumors with low and high complexity, and then similar for medium and large tumors. And this may help to serve an understanding about the um, benefits and um, risks of doing nephron sparing surgery um, versus having to do a radical nephrectomy. Often patients with small renal masses are worried about their risk of mortality and metastasis from their tumor. And this table really trying to show um, what the current risks are of those from the literature. And this may provide the patient's reassurance that surveillance is safe for their tumor and balance this against the risk of competing risk of mortality. Finally, there is some information into the pros and cons of the different management strategy. Um, and this is really to complement the physician's shared decision-making table. And this really goes into in-depth what the patient can expect from each one of these treatment modalities. Plans are to create a patient-specific resource in the future and hopefully getting any feedback from physicians and patients alike. In summary, um, what we would like to say is that current surveillance rates um, within music are highly variable. Um, data does increase, uh, does indicate that we do use surveillance well in the ideal candidates, such as those with two centimeter tumors or those in who are comorbid. But really, what the proper amount is very difficult to, to understand and whether that's, um, uh, whether, and it remains really unclear. The roadmap of the management of T1 masses is, uh, is available, and uh, we should be sending this out to you guys. Um, this is based on the consensus of 26 music urologists. And these are recommendations really on initial evaluation, appropriateness, and how to do surveillance in the future. Now I'd like to open this up to our panel to discuss this in more detail.
Thank you, Dr. Patel, uh, for the overview um, of the roadmap. And I want to just in, uh, welcome all of our panelists. Uh, so we have um, physicians, Dr. Patel, myself, Dr. Michael Levin uh, from Comprehensive and Brian Lane. And we have a patient with us as well, um, Mr. James Humphreys. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Um, so, and it, um, what I wanna do, we have two panels and we'll have some of the physicians on both panels, but Mr. Humphreys, I definitely wanna get your impressions up from a patient standpoint of, um, of seeing you know, your own experience in making a decision for active surveillance and what you've heard today about a roadmap that physicians can use um, in explaining things to you as a patient. So just curious, you know, maybe you can tell us your own journey as a patient and how something like this might offer reassurance to you. Well, you know, I, I've read it several times in my own journey. This was kind of found by accident. I went in because I had back pain. They found this uh, mass. So, um, and, and then I was referred to um, the ure urologist. So um, getting to the, the paper written, it was very interesting, the assigned points. How do you, you know, the two different breakdowns, the evaluation phase and the, um, you know, surveillance phase, those things, um, since my thing is like three, eight or something, it's under four. So I'm right on that cusp of making that decision. So therefore the criteria of, you know, the different points um, added up to such and such. And that kind of helped me determine whether I wanted to have another uh, scan in determining what my surveillance would be. Now, if it was to grow, that would make my decision differently. So in looking at the, um, the different kind of parameters that were set up there and reading it several times, it's, it's very helpful that it's broken down into those particular phases. So um, it makes it, we're, as a patient, we're gonna get our information. We're gonna Google it. We're gonna find information all over the place. So when it comes from, uh, you know, your physician, this has to be the best, you know, this, this has to be the best and we will take it as being the best. Okay. And um, I think that's, you know, that's really important to break that down and have it. You have to, I had to read it a few times. I mean, I had to go over it a few times for it to really make um, sense to me. And I talked to, you know, about my, with my wife too, and kind of broke it down, particularly the life expectancy part of it, you know, a um, little more sophisticated uh, reading. So, um, but I found it very helpful to have kind of this roadmap to get me from like A to B to C to, to the decisions that I have to make. I have another scan scheduled in June 3rd. And so with this material and when that scan comes back, I think I'll have enough information to make my decision going forward. And you mentioned life expectancy. Uh, just curious, how does it make you feel if a physician is factoring in your life expectancy on your decision making? Is that feel weird that they're calculating that for you or no, how I had, do you feel about that? I had this discussion with my wife this morning and it doesn't make me feel different about it. I think, you know, if I were 45 and had two kids in college, like I did, it would be different, you know, but I don't, I'm 67 years old. Um, I think it's important to know that information. You know, I think I'm pretty lucky to find out about this in the first place. So therefore everything that I can learn about it is going to benefit me. 
So am I uncomfortable with your question? I'm not that uncomfortable with it, you know, not on a, not on a one-to-one. I don't want to be grouped into a group that says, this is all, you know, 67 year olds. Cause I, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I, you know, I have strong friendships. I have a great family. You know, I don't want to be lumped into everything, but I think you have to get that from the personal part of your discussion with your physician. Thank you so much. I want to ask one of our physicians, Dr. Levin, um, what, what value does the roadmap add to your practice when you're seeing consults for active surveillance? So it, thanks, you, Craig. It really does add uh, a nice adjunct to guidelines. Uh, I, I try to use visual aids as much as possible in patients. And uh, I mean, mentioned, uh, you know, the patients never seen a renal mass. You know, they don't, they're coming in, they're scared. So to have that, and I go over the images when my patients saw uh, all the time, I show them what I'm looking at, what I'm thinking as I'm discussing the imaging with them, and, and what uh, what steps they have uh, or what options they have available. And so, be able to show them examples relative to theirs, and then show them these other visual aids, uh, and that really is helpful. And then to hopefully have something that they can take home, uh, as the uh, patient on our, our uh, chat here mentioned, I think is really beneficial because I like to give them something they can hold. And like you said, coming from the doctor really does make a difference. So uh, having that roadmap available, I think will really give the patient the confidence that we're, you know, to show us some, some of the, the methods of the madness of, uh, of what we think and what we take and all the factors that go into this guy, this, uh, making that decision of what we end up doing. Are there certain parts that you think are going to be more useful or that you'll use more often with a patient, a particular page you might show them that might resonate, or, um, you know, that are your go-to, you know, to get the, the message across? Yeah, I think the, the renal scoring, you know, when we look into the complexity of the tumor, because, uh, you know, they don't know what a renal mass is and they fear the worst. And so showing them that, you know, you don't have something that's as concerning or uh, taking that all into account. Uh, and then the, the I like the examples of that. You know, a lot of times I'm Google renal masses and I show the patient, uh, oh, look, this is like yours. You know, this is a cyst. Yeah, this is a cyst. And, and so they can see what they have. And then um, so they can compare that. And then the other thing was the, the uh, I think we'll talk about it later in the uh, in the uh, um, in the panel, but we have the uh, roadmap of, of how often to surveil. And so that shows them kind of what they can expect going forward. And, and then, you know, ultimately something they can have in their hand and say, okay, this is my plan and this is what I've got. And they have a much better idea of coming, going out of the meeting uh, than coming in what they have uh, going forward. Great. Thank you, Brian and Ammon. I want to get both of your opinions, at least for a minute here a piece. Um, so Brian, uh, how do, how are you using this in your practice? Uh, the roadmap, what value is it adding for you? I think in designing it, really, the, the question was, where were the gaps uh, and what we could currently show to patients? And and similar to Dr. Levin, and, and when I show a patient their images, I think that's really helpful, but they've never seen anyone else's and they've never seen a kidney before. And so I think, um, you know, someone can think a two centimeter mass is huge until you show them oh, this is what yours looks like versus some other people have bigger ones that are replacing the whole kidney. So um, I think that's uh, a helpful aspect. I think also having on a sheet of paper what the metastasis rate is, um, is helpful because I think sometimes as the physician, we want to uh, use nonspecific words like low risk of it coming back or we caught it early. Um, and that kind of uh, 
keeps us a little more honest to what's there. And then if that goes home with the patient, I think that's helpful. Great. Thanks, Brian. And Amit, how about you? How are you using it in your daily practice? This roadmap? Yeah, I think similarly to what Dr. Levin and Dr. Lane have said, you know, I think being able to give a visual picture to patients to see how their mass is in relation to what we see, you know, this is the first time they've seen it. And, um, you know, just really speaking to about the, you know, putting the numbers down for the risk of metastasis, um, you know, at initial presentation of follow-up really puts it home to them that, you know, with a small mass, it is safe to, to survey them. And I think that's sort of reiterated throughout the roadmap. You know, we have the, the table showing life expectancy against mass size and where we as a group thought there was consensus for, for a mass less than three. And then, you know, you can show them that based on data from metastasis. And I think that really does help patients sort of navigate. I think where, where we can go from here is really providing them patient-facing information um, to really to take home and really digest. You know, when they're with us in the consultation, they may not have time to really remember everything that we've said and have something to take home would be, would be helpful. All right. Well, thank you all for your comments. And with that, I'll turn the time over to Dr. Lane. Thanks, Craig. Looking forward to continuing our discussion now about uh, presenting uh, what the panel found with respect to doing surveillance. Um, when these 26 urologists met, while we reached consensus on numerous topics about evaluating and uh, managing uh, patients with renal masses, we really were unable to reach consensus on the timing of surveillance evaluations. This might not be surprising given the lack of data and guidelines in this area and really uh, why uh, I'm excited for this panel to kind of address some of the remaining questions, uh, like what type of imaging should we do and should it always be the same study? Uh, so what do the guidelines say? If we look at the AUA, EAU, and NCCN guidelines, they're really not very specific about how to do surveillance. Uh, you can see, uh, for example, the first abdominal imaging uh, can be three to six months or six to 12 months, and the AUA really has suggested kind of a tailored approach. The EAU hasn't said anything, uh, and NCCN says within six months, and then subsequent to this, at least annually. So really not a lot of specifics uh, that are there, uh, leaving the clinician up to a lot of uh, independence in terms of how to manage their patients. Um, so as a group, the roadmap eventually uh, concluded that regular abdominal imaging and renal function assessments are both recommended. Uh, and then let me show you what uh, we found with respect to timing of these. Uh, so again, there's no consensus and really it was felt that the timing should best be decided by the urologist and patient taking into consideration risk tolerance, the age and comorbidities of the patients, uh, as well as the tumor size and the growth rate. Uh, and this is uh, what we came up with and may be challenging to interpret, but um, each of those bars uh, shows the range of values for 80% of the respondents. So 80% at least of the respondents felt that the first imaging study should be either at three months or six months. And so that's why those light blue bars extend from three to six months. Uh, the second study, however, was really at a different time based on the size of the tumor. And so if it was a smaller tumor up to four centimeters, um, the respondents in general said it should either be nine months after diagnosis or as much as 18 months after diagnosis 
Whereas if it was a bigger tumor, six and up, that second study should be between six and 12 months. And again, you can see similar wide ranges for the third. So how did we kind of bring this all together? Well, at a minimum, um, the panelists felt that the first study should be within three to six months, the second one within 12 months later, and the third one within 12 months after that. Uh, and so that kind of defined the lowest intensity surveillance. Um, and then the highest intensity surveillance, again, if we look at these bars, would be first study at three months, second at six months, and third at 12 months. So that was our highest intensity of surveillance. So we also represented that uh, here in two ways, a high intensity surveillance plan and low intensity. And this kind of parallels what we did uh, with prostate cancer. Um, and again, we'll acknowledge no one plan is best in all scenarios, but this is really uh, the attempt to kind of get all the thoughts uh, together and give some guideposts uh, or some guardrails as to what would be the least amount of surveillance or the most uh, that would be recommended. Uh, when should further investigation or treatment be done? Uh, you can follow along uh, here, but again, if a tumor is growing rapidly, uh, if it grows to greater than five centimeters, those would be uh, times when we would think uh, about transitioning to treatment, uh, getting a biopsy if one hadn't been done already, uh, and getting chest imaging for any mass that's over five centimeters, um, change uh, in uh, patient life expectancy or tumor stage, uh, would be another reason, again, uh, that we would think about uh, transitioning to treatment um, uh, and patient preference. And then finally, if there's suspicion of local progression or metastatic disease, get imaging of those areas. So how are we doing uh, in the state of Michigan? Well, the plans uh, laid out by the urologists uh, were to image within 12 months in nearly every patient. But in reality, when we look in the database, it's actually only about 50% of patients that are having follow-up imaging and even fewer that are having documentation of follow-up renal function assessment. Um, so this really suggests uh, some quality improvement uh, that what the urologist is planning is not actually happening in the patients. We can compare this with prostate cancer across the collaborative and uh, you may or may not remember seeing some slides like this, but when we defined minimal surveillance at three and a half years in prostate cancer to be three PSAs and one tumor burden reassessment, about 70% got that follow-up. So it seems like for kidney, we're behind that only at about 50%. And so uh, there's clearly some room to improve. Uh, so summaries here would be that guidelines uh, recommended regular abdominal imaging. Uh, the panel of music urologists added renal function assessment to this. We've developed a roadmap that sets guide rails, both on the high and intensity and low intensity sides. Um, but across music, less than half of our renal mass surveillance patients are getting even the minimum recommended follow-up with that low intensity plan. So we can do better. Uh, and I look forward to uh, this opportunity to discuss with our panelists about how they're doing surveillance uh, and their, their thoughts. Thank you, Dr. Lane. Um, appreciate your... Uh your perspective and insight, and I want to welcome our panelists. Um, so we have many of our panelists back, and also uh, so Dr. Lane, Dr. Levin, uh, Dr. Submersion, Dr. Patel. Um, so I uh, want to ask some questions about active surveillance of just how you all do it. So um, Dr. Submersion, let's start with you. Do you feel like active surveillance should be the same in all patients? Do you tailor it? What What is your kind of 
preferred way that you um, do imaging for your patients? Yeah, I think there is a lot of variation in the way active surveillance is done across patients. I mean, it really depends on a lot of things, the age, the health of the patient, and also the patient's anxiety level. You know, that can dictate shorter intervals in between scans and also the use of cross-sectional imaging versus ultrasound. Um, you know, and there's a lot of patients that we follow on active surveillance who are much older people who are unhealthy and have larger masses and we continue to watch them, um, but don't intend to, you know, hopefully ever operate on them. So, you know, the, the interval for them may be a little bit longer in between. So, you know, typically I'll like to use cross-sectional for the first one or two um, images and then switch, you know, on and off to ultrasound and uh, maybe mix in cross-sectional imaging every couple of years, depending on really the growth rate, which is another important factor. So great points that you brought up, and I want to get some of the other panelists in on this idea of mixing and matching. You know, do you mix CT and MR? Do you alternate? Do you get M do you get ultrasound in there? When it's kind of time to graduate, do you pull back in a CT or MRI? Um, Dr. Lane, let's start with you. I want to remind if anyone has questions to drop them in the chat so we Thank can uh, address those as well. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of ultrasound. I'm a big fan of doing less. Um, I think the point of surveillance is to make sure there's not any big changes. Uh, and so especially in our older patients in whom we're really not looking to make any major changes, uh, I think ultrasound all the way. Um, if the study can't be completed well and you can't visualize the tumor well, uh, you can always get a CT or an MRI at that point. It's definitely lower cost um, and no contrast is needed. So I, I like ultrasound. Um, but again, there's the trade-off of I'm not looking at metastases. I'm not really <clears throat> looking at features of the tumor. I just want to know it's not growing very quickly. Um, so that's why I do that. I, I can understand other providers might really want to see the characteristics of the, of the tumor. Uh, and maybe that's how we all get to different answers. Um, Dr. Levin, I wanted to ask you, do you have kind of a routine that you use for active surveillance, uh, you know, six months, three months, uh, go to a year, what, um, a preferred imaging modality? What is kind of your routine for active surveillance? Sure. Yeah, I, I think, uh, like Dr. Levin said, I, I like ultrasound. I initially try to characterize as much as I can with some cross-sectional imaging. And then based on the patient's age and anxiety level and, and comorbidities, then we can tailor it. And uh, so, you know, if it's a small mass, I get some imaging, show them that within three to six months, it's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. We can keep an eye on it and we can push things out a little more. And then um, I, I really do try to use ultra, utilize ultrasound. And, and then like uh, Dr. Mergen said that sometimes I'll add in a cross-sectional imaging. Sometimes they're getting Imaging for other things occasionally, so that uh, you know adds uh, adds into the mix. And uh, uh, but if, if I can push it out to annually, and then you know some of these patients have been on for years, and then we end up going every couple of years, even just to uh, you know show them that things are okay. And um, and then most of the time we don't have to do anything, so it works out well. This is something I've learned from many of you, or been encouraged by many of you on this panel to use more ultrasound. I had just been sort of in a, a rut of getting CTs and, and I think the ultrasounds are definitely easy to get. Um, and uh, we don't need to always get contrast imaging uh, in between. Um, Dr. Patel, um, wanted to ask you, what about chest imaging? Do you feel that that's needed in follow-up? If so, how often do you get it? What, what's the role of chest imaging for you? 
Uh, well, you know, actually, the Disarm study published, and, and I studied looking at the utility of chest imaging, and you know, that was really localized for the small renal mass, and they said there really wasn't any role for that. But I think if we are observing some some of these larger tumors where they may have a higher risk, I think chest imaging is probably worthwhile over the five centimeter mark. Um, but beyond that, I think at the initial initial evaluation, they should get one. But after that, probably not necessary. All right, so I wanted to ask a little bit about who does this. So we've got a plan and we can go high or low intensity surveillance, but who's, who's kind of the one managing all this? Is it the urologist? Is it the APP, the primary care physician? Um, let's, uh, Dr. Levin, let's start with you. Um, who, who does this in your practice? So I think typically the urologist uh, myself would would be the one running the uh, the show in terms of their surveillance. I do try to keep the uh, primary care doctor involved and write you know thorough notes. They understand exactly what the my perspective is and my my reasoning for deciding what we're doing. Uh, you know, I, I try to use nomograms and, and some statistics. Uh, the Fox Chase nomogram I like a lot to show that the the low uh, percent that this kidney mass will actually harm the patient. So that puts things into perspective. Occasionally, there's an oncologist involved if they've had other uh, uh, cancers, and so they may be part of the plan. Uh, but most of the time, it's uh, uh, under my direction. Um, how about you, Dr. Sumersion? Um, yeah. Same. Uh, I, most of my surveillance I do myself. I was actually very surprised to see the number of patients who are not following up for their imaging studies within 12 months. That that was a pretty shocking number. So, you know, very much mirroring what we're doing in prostate cancer. I think a lot of the same initiatives can be used in kidney cancer. And, you know, in, in listing the help of the PCPs, I think is a great idea if we have a good way to do that, because, you know, they're very familiar with PSA and prostate cancer for the most part, but may not be thinking about uh, renal mass or maybe something that's forgotten about. So, yeah. um, Brian, I think you had mentioned that you're using partnering with the PCPs and doing this. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I may be the outlier in the group for doing surveillance, and I don't know if it's my practice pattern or uh, you know, how we got to this point, but we have a number of APPs and we have a very great, uh, uh, APPs and, and strong program. And I think our patients really, uh, value and appreciate their input. So a lot of, uh, my surveillance, whether it's for renal cell or for prostate gets done by APPs in our office. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of value, you know, in our, in our group, they get, uh, longer time for their office visits. Patients have more opportunity to ask questions. And um, I do think it also takes a little bit of the pressure off um, when you've got the surgeon who might be chomping at the bit um, to not be involved. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think it's been a good thing. The other thing I, I would mention um, in terms of doing is there is some real importance in terms of understanding what growth means. Um, especially if you're using different uh, imaging modalities. Uh, and so the patient who had a 1.9 centimeter tumor and six months later, it's 2.1, that doesn't count. Um, you know, it's, it's the same. Um, if you really need to know, you can get another one three months later, um, but really you're looking at greater than five millimeter or uh, seven and a half over a year. And so trying to reassure patients, I think is important to make sure your whole team is, is on board. 
I'll just say when you do a lot of surveillance and you have these 80-year-old patients and 85 and 90-year-old patients, I'm not sure there's a lot of value to bringing them in for one additional visit with the urologist. Uh, and that's where I really, you know, see partnering with the primary care doc. Um, so anyway, that, that's been our approach. And in our, in my practice, we, the APPs run our surveillance. Um, you know, they're doing most of our surveillance and, and we have a side-by-side -side clinic. So I'll occasionally, I'll get pulled in, let's say they're about to graduate, you know, you can high five and say it's gone well, or I'll get pulled in if someone has progressed and we're going to have a discussion. Um, uh, we do have a question I want to pull in from Dr. George. Uh, this is back to the chest imaging. So if the, rest, if the risk of metastasis is so low at diagnosis, even from three to five centimeters, uh, in light of that, how strongly do the panelists feel about chest imaging? Is it that important? Um, you know, I think by NCCN guidelines, right, that we put up there, it's uh, sort of as indicated, right? Uh, so um, any strong feelings um, either way about getting it or, or not getting it at all? Um, about Dr. Levin, is that a routine part for you, chest imaging? Oh, yeah, I think it depends on the characteristics and the life expectancy, et cetera. And, uh, Dr. Lane alluded, some of these 89-year-olds, they're not really needing to be followed so closely. Uh, and so I think that chest imaging and depend for small real masses, I think it's, uh, as Dr. Patel mentioned earlier, it's, it's not very helpful. And so something for baseline, if they're a larger, more complicated, then I think it's perhaps more useful, but again, that depends on, uh, on the patient and, and what else we're doing. All right, thank you. Well, with that, um, I'll turn the time over to uh, Dr. Ghani. Thank you all to our panels. Thanks. Thank you, uh, thank you, Craig. Uh, thanks, thank, thanks to you for really leading that, that session. Uh, and thanks to Brian, uh, Brian Lane. Thanks to Amit Patel. Thank you, uh, Alice Samergian, and and, uh, and Michael Levin. Thank you very much. Uh, I actually learned a tip from you now, Mike, which is uh, I'm going to do more ultrasound. I think I'm like Craig as well. I, I, I'm, I'm probably giving radiation therapy for my small renal masses, you know. Uh, but thanks for that, and uh, most importantly, thank you, Mr. Humphreys, for uh, coming on board and, and giving us your perspectives, especially around. Uh, how you thought that the roadmap was valuable. And uh, and an important comment you made is about not pigeonholing patients into a single box where everyone's different and unique. And uh, I really uh, enjoyed the discussion between Craig and you around the life expectancy and your thoughts on that. So a, a great session from the kidney group. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you know, it's been two years of the COVID pandemic. I think, you know, I don't need to tell that to everyone. And so it's been two years of music webinars. And, and I and I and I and I just want to thank everyone for a really great session today. We are very hopeful that the next uh, meeting that we have in June will be in person. So we really are looking for a great in-person attendance and getting back to doing the things the way we, we do it. But, you know, even today uh, on the chat, we had comments from uh, Eric Stockel, uh, Ben Stockton, Maz Ahmed, uh, uh, Dr. Ratchford, uh, I mean, uh, Brad Rosenberg. I mean, the list goes on. So thanks to everyone for getting involved and 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 giving us your perspectives. Here are some key takeaways from today's meeting. 
from the prostate team, we we heard about that music. We're now going to start exploring uh, a new program on next generation imaging with PSMA PET. Uh, and for this, we will start data collection. And it's a new quality initiative for us. Uh, and our goal is to understand when to use and when not to use uh, this um, new scan. And uh, we're planning to partner with uh, other urologists as well outside the state, including the PERC Collaborative, and also see how we can partner with industry on this. Uh, uh, Jason Haffron said it really well, that maybe we have an opportunity here in Michigan to work with our sponsors and our partners, Blue Cross Blue Shield, to see if we can improve the authorization process. So we will look into that. But my ask, my request for music urologists and abstractors and the team out there is to do a better job in collecting this data. So when we start this program, we are going to um, make a request for better templating, especially around uh, the imaging use for PSMA PET. From Dr. Dow, uh, we had a great session on shockwave lithotripsy, uh, and we uh, had a a, a wonderful review of the music registry data, as well as some of the state-of-the-art literature from uh, Dr. Katru. Uh, and what we saw is, especially in music, and especially in the registry, uh, there is substantial variation in how shockwave lithotripsy patients are having uh, pain management. We're really fortunate to have Harry West join the panel today, and uh, we want to thank him and for his expertise. Um, but I think as a group, we have a real opportunity to implement an opiate-free uh, shockwave with tripsy pathway. And we will work on that and we will send that to you. Our request to you is, can we do better in monitoring the patient experience and outcomes? And so those groups who've not yet joined ROCKS Pro, uh, please consider doing that. And I think you will find that it's a valuable endeavor that will help us get better. And we really have an opportunity going forward. You saw the, the, the lack of evidence out there and, and the thousands and thousands of cases that we collect for shockwave lithotripsy. We have real opportunity going forward, like, like Naveen said, to informing not just practice here in the state of Michigan, but practice in the United States and, and, and beyond. And then we heard that from the kidney group, uh, the uh, development of the uh, roadmap and the surveillance for small renal masses. But never the, despite you know, our efforts to standardize this, there is still um, a variation in the care for small renal masses. And we're hoping by introducing this roadmap, we're going to reduce this variation. And it will be to your practices insight soon. Uh, and our request is to start to use it. And I know we'll also put it on the Ask Music website and it will be available. We want to thank the 26 music urologists who are part of that process uh, to develop these guidelines. Uh, and we heard from Mr. Humphreys today that he found it helpful. And so we're making an impact there. These uh, guidelines will be available and they're going to tell us around initial uh, evaluation, appropriateness for surveillance and the scheduling, whether it's a high or low intensity plan. I just want to close with a couple of upcoming events. Our next webinar will be a skills workshop in April. Uh, we will send you an email uh, alerting you about this. And we're going to be covering complications in urologic surgery. And we're going to cover an area that hasn't been discussed much uh, uh, worldwide. And it's about how complications as well can affect the surgeon. So the impact of adverse events on surgeons. And we'll be um, joined by that by a keynote speaker, Professor Kevin Turner, who has been working with the Royal College of Surgeons in England on some of the work in this domain. So please join us for this exciting webinar. Uh, 
those who make it to the AUA New Orleans, uh, we look forward to seeing you there. We hope you can support the 16 music presentations that you should see during the program. And we look forward to seeing you on our Saturday evening reception. All of today's uh, talks and uh, summaries will be available both on our music website and also on the podcast. Uh, and you can uh, find that on the Apple podcast service. And I just want to take a moment to thank all the members of the coordinating center who helped put this together. Uh, you know, all the folks here, they work extremely hard, but I just really want to take a, 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 a just time out to just thank Susan Linsell, Anna Johnson, Stephanie Ferrante, Bronson Conrado, Mahin Mirza, Rod Dunn, Cheeky, uh, Stephanie Daynock Nielton, uh, Rabia Martin, Corinne Labardi, and Max Quang from our coordinating center. Without the hard work of these individuals, we would not be able to deliver uh, the successes we've done so far and the successes that we need to deliver in the future. So most of all, thank you to all of you for your ongoing commitment and support to making Michigan the number one place for urologic care. Um, thank you. Have a good evening. And please send us comments by email. And we're happy to have and uh, continue the discussion further. Have a, have a good evening, good night, and uh, look forward to seeing you again in, in June for our in-person meeting. Thanks. <laughs>